0: We'll be reading from Jeremiah thirty-five today. If you would like to follow along, this is um, again out of the prophet Jeremiah. This is our series, and it's not always chronological in the way that we approach Jeremiah because his the books aren't chronological. But hopefully, if you've been able to hear some of the previous ones, you get a little bit of a sense of the context. I'm not going to revisit all of that this morning. So let's read from Jeremiah 35. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of King Jehoiakim, son of Josiah of Judah. Go to the house of the Rechabites and speak with them and bring them to the house of the Lord and to one of the chambers and offer them wine to drink. And jump forward to verse 5. So then I, this is Jeremiah, set before the Rechabites pitchers full of wine and cups, and I said to them, have some wine. But they answered, we will drink no wine. For our ancestor Jonadab, son of Rechab, commanded us, you shall never drink wine, neither you nor your children, nor shall you ever build a house or sow seed, nor shall you plant a vineyard, or even own one. But you shall live in tents all your days, that you may live many days in the land where you reside. We have obeyed the charge of our ancestor Jonadab, son of Rechab, and all that he commanded us, to drink no wine all our days, ourselves, our wives, our sons, or our daughters, and not to build houses to live in. We have no vineyard, or field, or seed, but we have lived in tents, and have obeyed and done all that our ancestor Jonadad commanded us. But when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came up against the land, we said, Come and let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans and the army of the Arameans. That is why we are living in Jerusalem. So remember that Jeremiah has been saying, as we've been looking at it, that Jerusalem is going to come under siege. From the king of Babylon. And that this is God's will. So this is what's happening right now. And so these. we are going to learn more about these folks. But they have said. Um, that's why we're in Jerusalem. We normally don't live in the city. We normally don't have houses. But we're here because the siege is happening. So then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. This is all taking place in the temple. Remember this. Thus says the Lord of hosts. The God of Israel. Go. Go and say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Can you not learn a lesson and obey my words, says the Lord? The command has been carried out that Jonadab, son of Rechab, gave to his descendants to drink no wine. And they drink none to this day, for they have obeyed their ancestors' command. But I myself have spoken to you persistently. There's that word we looked at last week. God's persistent. I've spoken to you persistently, and you have not obeyed me. I have sent you all my, prof- ser- my servants of prophets, sending them persistently, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from your evil ways and amend your doings, and do not go after other gods to serve them. And then you shall live in the land that I give you and your ancestors. But you did not incline your ear to me or obey me. The descendants of Jonadab, son of Rechab, have carried out the command that their ancestor gave them. But this people has not obeyed me. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts... The- the God of Israel, I'm going to bring on Judah and on all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, every disaster that I have pronounced against them, because I have spoken to them and they have not listened. I have called to them and they have not answered. So the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Again, Jeremiah, one of the prophets, um, hard. To preach from for me at least hard to teach from there's so much history and context that we could get into and also so often if I just jumped off of um, Jeremiah's last points I should probably be preaching a sermon that says something like turn or burn right except I'd have to scream it because that would be that would be the the response that God is, is he's, I mean the prophets are saying this over and over and over and over And I don't think we're necessarily comfortable with that, because we don't want to hear God saying, you've been sinful, you're stubborn, you're not listening to me, you're disobedient. Um, And yet, this is part of our story. This is part of the reason that when we get to Advent, and we remember the coming of Jesus, we understand why Jesus had to come. When we get to Lent, and we talk about the reason that Jesus had to go and be tried and had to go through all of this suffering and go to the cross, it's because God had tried and tried and tried and tried again and again and again. So in this story, there's an image that Jeremiah is using. This is one of the things I like about Jeremiah. He's using this group called the Rechabites, and we're going to look at them in just a second. Before we do that, I want to tell you a little bit of a story, just a brief portion of one that you're very familiar with, I'm sure. On April 14th, 1912, there was a luxury ocean liner unlike any that had ever been built called the Titanic. And it was built to be unsinkable. Right? We all know this story. And it's on its maiden voyage sailing across the the North Atlantic. And it's a moonless night. This is, of course, before all of the the great electronics and things that our our ocean-going vessels have today. So... There were other boats who were radioing in and saying there's some icebergs in the area, there's some icebergs in the area. But despite that, the captain of the Titanic kept cruising along at an incredibly fast rate of speed. They had inadequate lookouts posted. There's some who say they perhaps didn't even have their um, binoculars with them because they were so confident in this ship. So when... An iceberg came in front of them. They were going so fast, and this large, unsinkable ship was so big that they could not stop and turn in time. It wasn't even nimble enough. Because it had been built to be invulnerable. You don't need to turn quickly. You don't need to stop quickly. And when the ship did strike the iceberg on its side, cutting a large gash down towards the bottom of the boat, nothing happened at first. The crew continued to do their normal thing. They had to go wake up the captain who was soundly asleep, despite the icebergs in the area. And he went down below deck, and by the time he got below deck to inspect the damage, there were already five compartments completely flooded. And they didn't know it yet, but it was already too late. People were so confident in this ship, those on board, that when the word began to spread, they didn't even believe that it was happening. They didn't believe that the ship could possibly be sinking. When they did a mayday over the radio, the ships in the area were slow to respond because they thought it's the Titanic. It's going to be fine. It's not going to sink. They didn't even put enough lifeboats on board for all of the people. And then the lifeboats that they did launch, as we know, tragically, were seriously um, under capacity. So that in the end... 2,223 passengers were on that ship and 1,517 died. And it's become an image of a tragedy. unless we think that that was, you know, that was ancient times. (laughs) Not that ancient, but that was before we have all of our technological superiority we have today. We wouldn't make that mistake again. Think about the space shuttle Challenger in 1986. I remember watching this. I was an elementary schooler and it was a big deal to me because they had this big contest to get a teacher into space. So the first teacher was going to go into space and they launched a space shuttle. And in schools across the country, kids were watching live as the space shuttle Challenger launched and exploded. And everybody on board died. The interesting thing about that was there were two men in mission control who were responsible for doing some of the checks, and they were very concerned that there was a problem with some of the O-rings going into the fuel system. But they were under an enormous amount of pressure to keep this launch going. After all, the whole nation was watching. And so they were pressured to give the A-OK and to allow the launch to happen. So what do these things have in common? And I could give you other examples. These are both examples of something that has been, since 1972, has been called groupthink. Groupthink. And groupthink is when a whole bunch of people value harmony and coherence, in other words, getting along and all being together, they value those over analysis and evaluation. And so what happens is that individual members of the group unquestioningly begin to follow the will of the group or leader and build consensus. So this is groupthink. Everybody's saying, there's so much pressure, we want it to be this way that even if I think differently, I'm just gonna buy in and I'm gonna do this. So in 1972, a social psychologist called Irving Janus coined this term. And since then, we've been able to look back in history and say, oh yeah, this happened here, this happened here. Those two examples were two of the ones that they've talked about. So let's go way back, what about Jerusalem? Okay, groupthink happened there. You remember the bigger context of what's happening with Jeremiah? Jeremiah has been saying again and again and again, despite you cleaning up the temple and making some reforms, your hearts are still not with God. You're still the same as everyone before you. And God is bringing judgment. Jerusalem is going to fall. So here's some of the marks, they say, of groupthink. One of the marks is illusion of invulnerability. So the group thinks, we can't be hurt. We can't be harmed, right? And this, do you see this in Jeremiah's time? Yeah. Everybody in Jerusalem's going, God is not going to let his city fall. Jerusalem? Israel? Yeah, okay. They, they, God might let them fall, but not us. Not his temple. Look at these walls. We're so strong, Right? We're invulnerable. There's a collective rationalization. The members discount any warnings. So anybody who brings a warning, the group says, no. They don't even reconsider their assumptions. So Jeremiah is saying these warnings and warnings, and they discount them. Don't listen to that guy. He's an old crazy prophet. He doesn't know what he's talking about. There's this belief. The group has a belief and groupthink of inherent morality. In other words, our group is good. We're moral. We're on the right side. Right? Did they believe that? Yes, they did. We are God's people. This is God's temple. This is God's city. We're on the good side here. They stereotype outside groups. So in groupthink, think, um, there's a very negative view of the enemy. And you cast stereotypes on them. So this was easy at this time for Jerusalem because everybody else is the Gentile. They're all the Gentiles. They're all not God's people. But this also gets applied to people like Jeremiah. So remember he gets that name. He says, God said, you know, to this, to this a leader of the temple, he says, I, God says to Jeremiah, I'm giving you a name. Your name is danger everywhere. And then all the kids start running around. They're calling Jeremiah that now. So now, he gets the stereotype. He's just dangerous. Don't listen to him, right? There's direct pressure on dissenters in groupthink. They push down any views that disagree with their own, right? There's self-censorship. So you don't say, you don't say what you're thinking. So members of the group begin to, say, um, to hold back what they want to say because they don't want to cause any trouble anyways, right? And then they get self-appointed, I love this term, self-appointed mind guards, Mind guards, okay. These are members who protect the group and the leader from any information that is problematic, right? Let's just keep this Jeremiah guy away from the people, they become mind guards, they don't want any other viewpoints to come in. So, it's in the midst of all of this that this story happens here in Jeremiah with the Rechabites. It's kind of an odd story in a lot of ways. I mean, who are these people? They're barely mentioned in the scriptures. And what we know of them mostly comes from this chapter. All we know is that they're more of a guild than a family. From what we can tell from other information in scripture, they're probably a guild of smiths, of metal workers. And they were itinerant, and they would travel around. They did, As you heard, they didn't live in houses, they didn't plant vineyards, and they didn't drink wine. Now, you have to be careful here, because I know in... In our context, it might be tempting to say, see, drinking wine is evil. God said, don't drink wine. But then of course you have to say, don't live in houses and don't plant anything, right? No, that's not what's going on here. There's something with the Rechabites that is different. And there's theories on this. I mean, we don't know for sure, but a lot of people think that because they were traveling smiths and because they did this sort of metalworking, they would go to one place and they would stay as long as there was work and there was ore and there was fuel to do the job. And then they would move on. And so their ancestor, who started this guild, was very smart. He said, you will never drink wine. Because if you drink wine, you just might spill some of our trade secrets, right? Loose <laughs> lips sink ships, kind of a thing. So That's a theory. There might be other reasons. But they don't drink wine, right? So they only come to Jerusalem. They don't like being in the city. They only come to Jerusalem because there's an invading army everywhere else. And they need some safety. So they're there, and you can imagine as they walk around the city that there's people kind of pointing and going, Who are those odd people? What are they doing here? They're, they're kind of different, right? And everybody else is setting up their tents in the square. What is this group? And so Jeremiah says, through God's inspiration, Hey, perfect example, right? So he takes them to a big open room in the temple. And he sets out all these tables so everybody can see. And he invites all the Rechabites over and he sets out big things of wine and says, here, enjoy. And what do they do? They refuse the hospitality. And just imagine the pressure on them. They're not in their home. They're in a city that is paranoid. This is in the middle of this group think, type thing. There's an invading army outside. There's a high alert for traitors. I mean, I think about what things, stories I've heard about what it was like in the 60s in this country with the fear of, you know, the Soviets and communism. And if you got that label communist, oh boy, right? So there's this, that kind of pressure. And so the host is giving them, this is a Middle Eastern culture. The host is giving them wine. Will you, you refuse, if you refuse something set before you, you are dishonoring someone. And honor is a big deal. So in the middle of the city, In the most holy place in the temple, they're invited by a prophet, and they're given wine. And what do they do? They say, actually, our ancestor told us that we will never drink wine, and we never have, and we can't now. And so Jeremiah basically turns around and says, hey, look, look at these guys. Look at what they're doing because of their ancestor. Their great-great-great-grandpa told them something. But you all, you all have God as a father. And He's asked you to live differently. And you can't do it. Here's proof you can do it. You don't have to be like every other culture around you, worshiping any God that comes up. You don't have to be sacrificing your sons and daughters to some false idols. You don't have to live like that. And there's proof because they are obeying their ancestor for generation after generation. Their ancestor is not even God. It's a visual living example. Exhibit number one in God's case against Jerusalem, if you will. I would say... That cultural peer pressure—this uh, we talk about this as kids' peer pressure—I would say that cultural pressure, peer pressure, is still a huge threat to those who call themselves God's people. And I would say that to be true of any culture in the world today that you live in. The gospel is inherently countercultural in the way that Jesus calls us to live. In Matthew seven, Jesus said. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and few find it. Again, it would be a mistake for us to jump to saying, oh, he's just talking about heaven. You know, there's this big open gate that leads to hell, a little tiny gate that goes to heaven. But as often as the case, Jesus is talking about now to his disciples. Present. He's saying right now there's a whole lot of people who are walking down this easy path that's leading to destruction. Their life is falling apart, they don't even know it. But there's only a few people who take this other path that's leading them to life, to fullness of life, right now and in, for eternity and in the future. He's not just talking, Jesus isn't just talking about some moral high road that's going to lead you to, to this eternal place we call heaven sometimes. He's talking about life now. And so I'm asking myself this week, and, and I'm asking you today, what does it look like for us today to follow Jesus in a way that's counter-cultural against our culture? Are there ways in which God is asking us to live that are different from the culture around us? Now, I'll tell you that when I was, most of my young Christian life, I was told the answer was yes. Of course, there's a lot of ways you've got to be countercultural. Here, wear this Jesus t-shirt to start. That's usually where it started. And then, and this is my experience. I know it's not yours. And then it was, um, you, you need to um, do all these things to stay sexually pure. And you need to listen to the right kind of music. And avoid the wrong kind of music. You need to avoid all this long list of movies. You need to avoid gambling and these kinds of things. And it was all this very, you know, moral stuff, which I think is, in many ways, of course, countercultural. But I have come to believe that as Christians, I think many of us are blind and deaf to the ways that we are going along with the culture against the gospel. I think we pick and choose the things that we want to be countercultural, because we like those particular things, and then we don't pay attention to the rest. I think that even a church can fall into the groupthink mentality, where we all begin to say the same things and like the same things. Um, I, I told you this before, but the pastor I had when I was in high school and a little bit in college, the thing I respect about him most is he often said when he was preaching, hey, you need to get into the scriptures and check what I'm saying for yourself and listen to God. And I would encourage you to do the same thing. Because if we all just agree with what I'm saying every week, we're in trouble because I don't always agree with the things I'm saying. When I look back 10 years or 15 years of my sermons, I go, I think I missed some stuff there. Right? I mean, we're all in process. We don't want to fall into that mentality. But here's how I see this happening. I said I think Christians can be blind and deaf to the way the culture, they're, they're you know, becoming part of the culture. I think many Christians in North America have elevated um, things that benefit themselves individually and their families directly as being Christian. I'll say that again. I think many Christians have elevated things that benefit themselves individually and their families specifically as being the Christian things rather than elevating those things that Jesus said to do, like living sacrificially. It's hard for me to say, but I see this happening in Christian culture and church culture. We tend to elevate and talk all the time. About things like how Christians should be so good at stewardship. And it often talks about you know, saving your money. And being good planners for retirement. And for your kids' college education. how to, you know, Protecting your home. Guarding your free time. Keep, keeping control of your, your personal privacy. And we elevate these things as Christian values. But all of those things, while they may be important, those are all benefiting us. In the meantime, the things that the gospel talks the most about, the most uncomfortable things for us, like welcoming the stranger, outdoing one another and honoring each other, inviting in the alien, becoming the servant of all. These things we don't talk about as much because those aren't necessarily benefiting us. So I don't want to say that it's an either or here. I think there are very, of course, there are very important scriptural arguments for things like, you know, you're, you're living properly in sexuality and morality and, you know, taking care of your family and being good stewards of your money. All of these things we can find scriptural evidence for. But what I'm saying is that the weight of the gospel is towards sacrificial living. The weight of the gospel is t- towards the end of denying yourself and elevating the other. And I'm not sure that the church is moving in that direction right now. I don't mean just this church. I'm talking about the Western church. And if I had to give an exhibit, I'm not Jeremiah, not even close. But if I had to give an exhibit, I would say, case in point, the refugee crisis that we're facing right now. I brought this up before. I'm okay with you disagreeing with me on this. But God is prompting my heart. I feel like Jeremiah. I can't just not say anything because it's burning within me. We're facing the largest refugee crisis since World War II. We're living it today. I didn't think I would see this in my lifetime. Of course, we're very much distant from it, but we live in the wealthiest country in the world, and we're receiving some of the fewest number of refugees of any developed country in this world. And what are the competing values here? I mean, we have to ask... See, this is where I think the cultural question and the gospel question conflict. And we have to ask ourselves, what are the competing values? The value of keeping refugees and the alien away are the values of safety, of protection. Right? And again, it's not the gospel. I don't think you can say the gospel says never protect yourself. Never stay safe. Never try to... I mean, because that's part of our responsibility. We need to be protecting others, right? Right? But that's one of the values. And then on the other side is the value of loving and accepting those who have lost everything. I mean, I just can't imagine. I cannot imagine losing my house, losing the lives of friends and family, losing my bank account, losing my car, losing my computer, everything, and walking out of my country with nothing but the clothes on my back. I can't imagine that. And then I can't imagine the pain of being thrown into a camp somewhere that I can't leave. And there's no food. And there's no health care. And there's nowhere to go. I can't imagine that. I can't imagine, though, what it would feel like if just one person said, you know what? Come here. I'll help you find a home. I'll give you a bed to sleep in. I'll help you learn to live in this new place. I mean, how that would feel unbelievably loving and compassionate. And I think I've mentioned before, but I think it's worth re-mentioning that there are many, many pastors, missionaries from this country and in this country who owe their faith and have professed and said they owe their faith to the fact that they were refugees during times like World War II and Vietnam, and guess who invited them into their community? The church, the church. So, I'm okay with you disagreeing with me. We don't need groupthink, right? The problem I think that we face is that social media can enforce this idea and they, they're talking about this a lot more today because in social media we get the sense that it happens in group think that everybody agrees with me why does everybody agree with me well because they're all my friends and if I disagree with someone I block them or take them off my Facebook account right and so I can just keep all those people who say the same things I do who like my posts and so they know that social media is actually accelerating this kind of thinking You know, so that we even get to the point where you I've I've heard Christians say, well, I just don't know anybody who's a Christian who's voting for Hillary Clinton. And then the other side, I'll hear Christians say, I don't know anyone who's a Christian who's voting for Donald Trump. You know, or I don't know anyone who's a Christian who's voting for either of those two. There's got to be a third way. I mean, the reason you don't know anybody is because we're tightening our circles so that we get people who think like us and speak like us all the time. So what's the solution? Well... It was possible to live differently than the culture in Jeremiah's day. And the Rechabites that Jeremiah brought before the people were the proof of that. But it's even more possible today. Folks, we have the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you alone. He said, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. Not only that, you're going to have power through the Holy Spirit. You're going to be able to do things that I never did. Jesus said that to his disciples. So we have this promise. We have the Holy Spirit with us. Here's a couple of guidelines I use as sort of my cultural checks. These are sort of the big ones, the top ones, and I use them all the time to ask myself, is the gospel or is the culture influencing what I'm thinking right now and the way I'm living? And here's the two I use from the Old Testament. I use Micah 6:8. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and right for you to do justice, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So simple. I've, he's told you what's right for you to do. Justice, which means giving every person what they deserve. It's justice. Loving mercy, which means sometimes letting people off the hook who deserve something. You don't give it to them, you show mercy because God's shown you mercy, right? Walk humbly. Humbly would apply to things like the way we live with our finances, but it also applies just to our general attitude, how we approach life, right? And then Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven 37 from the New Testament is my other big one. It should be on the forefront of all of our minds, I think, all the time. Because when people came to Jesus and said, Jesus, teacher, tell us. It's one of the questions that we would have wanted asked if it hadn't been in Scripture. What are the greatest commandments? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And this is the first, number one. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All, not some, all of the law, all of the prophets hang on these two. So here's a simple filter. Am I doing justice? Am I loving mercy? Am I walking humbly? Am I loving God? Am I loving my neighbor? Lord Jesus, even as these words come out, I am just so aware of how simple and yet difficult it is to live this way. So easy for us, Lord, to turn and look inside and to be caring mostly about ourselves. We feel so small at times and unable to really change the culture and change big things, and yet. We know, Lord, that you have always called your people to walk down a more narrow road. Father, I ask that you would help us to have the heart for this, that this would be our desire, that we would be this kind of people. And God, where there is difficulty, where there are things that we are holding on to so tightly that we don't want to let go of, I ask that you would give us the strength and the courage to let go and to trust you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.